Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast and my name's Jason Barnard and that was Zal Clemenson's Sin Dogs and uh, Govan Boy. You'll probably be familiar with uh, Zal through his uh, work, uh, guitar work and, and songwriting uh, with the sensational Alex Harvey band and it's great to hear Zal's back with uh, Sin Dogs when you heard a taster of that there. Welcome Zal. Ah, nice to be here, nice to speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Can you tell me about... Um, Sin Dogs, how you kind of, uh, the, the concept was born, and because uh, you had a bit of a, a, a break of the past 10 years, I understand. Yeah, yeah, I took, well, I mean, we, we, we put Sab back together um, around mm. 2006, 2007, uh, with a, with a uh, so we've been looking for singers for a, quite a while, actually, something to front, you know, the band again, and mm. and we came across a guy called Max Maxwell, who was uh, from Glasgow, and he was a big Sab fan himself, and he he kind of brought something to the to the to the table in terms of the presentation, in terms of a bit of theatrics, a bit of to put his own spin on it, and it kind of got to me that he was he kind of inspired me really at that time. Anyway, we got the band at that time back together, and it was fine up to a point, and then I got to a stage with Sab where I mm. where I wanted to kind of move things forward and try to sort of write and record and, and get some some new material done basically and, and with some new ideas. Mm. It didn't meet with a lot of enthusiasm, I have to say, from everyone else. They were quite, you know, he seems happy just to turn up and do all the old stuff. And I was like, well, I didn't really want to prance about to Delilah for the rest of my life. And I just thought, right, okay. I just thought, right, hmm. I'd had enough at that point. I just said, but we're not going to move forward then, you know, I'll just pull the plug on it. And effectively, that's what I've done. And, and, and then I spent a few years over in Cyprus. My wife had gone over to Cyprus to work and we'd, we'd spent some time in Cyprus um, for four years. And during that period, I had suffered a bit of a bad sort of a depression and, and uh, anxiety attacks mm. and so on. And I thought to myself, well, I need to do something about this. I need to start trying to get myself out of it. And I, I just had a little guitar with me and a little acoustic guitar. And I picked that up. And I thought, right, anyway, what is a, a form of therapy than anything else? I thought, well, let's see what happens. I'll just put the guitar up and see where it goes. And lo and behold, it was suddenly ideas started to come. You know, I got sort of themes for things, lyrics. I got myself involved again in, in, in writing and, and playing. And so I, I just it's kind of snowballed from that point onwards. And I sent some ideas to our keyboard player, David Cowan, who was, uh, I knew beforehand, and asked him if he wanted to get some recording done. He wanted to get some... And at that stage, I hadn't really any idea of where it was going to go. I just going to record something and see, see, what, see what happened. Mm. But um, it kind of just got bigger and bigger. You know, it just, as I say, it just sort of snowballed. And, and, um, and suddenly it was like, yeah, could we put a whole band together? And there you go. We decided to call it Sin Dogs. And, uh, and that's where we're at, yeah. And the track Govan Boy, is that kind of going back to your roots? Govan Boy is, well, I was, when I had written a few songs and some of the I thought, well, I'll put out a solo album. Maybe sort of just, and because I was born in Govan, which is a part of Glasgow, I don't know if you know Govan. It's an area in Glasgow where the shipbuilding, the shipyards are. Yeah, yeah. And I was born in Govan, so I thought, well, yeah, I'll call the album Govan Boy. That's, that's really nice. You know, and got a bunch of songs together, and that'll be a nice little solo project. And um, and the song itself is about the shipyards closing down, and it was such a sweet song. And I had it. It was one of the first songs I wrote in Cyprus when I was when I started to put things together. It came to me quite quickly. So yeah, I mean, so the history of that is really from where I where yeah. It, it takes me back to, to, to the time when, you know, the time in Glasgow when I grew up sort of thing and, and the shipyards were closing down. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a poignant little song for us all. Mm. The track I've, I've chosen to, uh, to to follow that uh, by Sin Dogs is uh, I.O.U. Is mm. 
the, the um, album generally has got that uh, sort of more modern rock sound, but obviously yeah. I understand, especially when we, we talk about tear gas a, a little later, you've yeah. always had that in you, haven't you? That, that sort of harder edge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You've, you've, yeah. Sin Dogs really is me going back full circle back to my roots and in, in heavy metal, heavy rock, which as you say, with tear gas is where I sort of came in with it. Tear gas sort of joined Alex and became the Alex Harvey band. So yeah, I have, I've, I've gone back to that. What, I play, I feel that like I play that quite, you know, it's an instinctive thing for me to play, it's heavy rock music, and it's the style of music that I enjoy, the style of guitar playing that I enjoy most, so mm. it was no hardship to sort of start putting ideas together in that sort of genre, and that sort of uh, that sort of vein of music, and it's, um, it's really where my heart lies, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Yeah, you're um, doing quite a, lot, quite a lot of live shows, including your own, as well as uh, supporting Snake Charmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been out since last year. We decided we tried. We got a show together. We well, yeah, we got a set together um, of all the material. Went out just before the end of last year and did some shows down in England, mainly in some in Glasgow, one in Edinburgh. And then we got the album recorded on the back of that and got the album out sort of uh, springtime, uh, springtime this year. So yeah, it's been a kind of we're desperate to kind of move things forward and get the band up and running. Uh, and just get out there and just play. You know, I just wanted to, I wanted to kind of switch off from Sab and just come, come out, come give everybody a chance to hear something new. And uh, I kind of stuck to that idea. Um, and it's been so well received. The song you mentioned, I O U, is really a kind of a, a kind of a, a nod in that direction because I wanted to say to people because the whole thing about getting back together and, and getting getting playing again was was. The enthusiasm I had from people on Facebook, on the media, mm. and uh, and stuff like that, all that kind of encouragement and, and support has been, it's just been unbelievable. And so I've just, I thought, well, here, here's a song to say I owe you for all that kind of, you know, getting me basically back on stage, to be perfectly honest. And it's, it's gone down really well, you know, the, even though the people haven't heard songs before, they haven't heard the material before. They were like really enthusiastic about the whole new project, and so it was it was it was heartwarming. Yeah. So not only has it been sort of artistically satisfying, it's actually been personally mm. satisfying. Totally, yeah. I mean, the idea of the therapy has actually worked. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, you know, just been able to go back and play music again has really it's, it's been my saviour, to be perfectly honest.
We've mentioned um, Tear Gas briefly, that the track I want to feature next is which is Come Home Today, which um, you've chosen. I mean, reading about Tear Gas, you were certainly in that sort of late 60s, early 70s, pre-Sab period. You you were kind of one of the Scotland's more biggest bands, certainly locally, and one of the few to release an album. Yeah, we had a couple of albums out, yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was quite a kind of unprecedented, really, I think, for a band like that. I mean, I mean, we'd come from school. We'd, we'd started playing together at school, uh, most of the guys in the band. At that time, was in the early six, the mid-60s, we were kind of playing more black soul music, you know, around Scotland. Mm. Because, basically, because people wanted to dance to things. So, and then, of course, the, the, the heavy the heavy rock thing came along, Zeppelin and Deep Purple and so on started to uh, appear. And we kind of morphed into that style of, of music. And and we didn't really, we had struggled really to get gigs because you couldn't really dance to heavy progressive music. It was like people rather, they sat on the floor with crossed legs mm. and 
and sort of just nodded to it. You know, it was a kind of a, it was a different, completely different experience. So we we kind of we did get the albums done, and we were you know we thought yeah we're doing okay, but we kind of come up against the brick wall to be perfectly honest in terms of where we were going, mm. in terms of success, I guess, and um, we were struggling a little bit. We hadn't hadn't really managed to get a singer that could really put the icing on the cake. You know, we were looking for a Robert Plant, for an Ian Gillan, for somebody that could just lead the band and, and take take over vocally and, 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 and really get, get to that level. But we just never managed to do it until we, we were kind of, sort of bumped up against Alex, really, in terms of a collaboration that came later on, you know.
but the second Tear Gas album, you actually that was actually released on a, a major label. Yeah, Regal Zonophone, I think was. Yeah, yeah. We toured a little bit. Did did England? Went to Germany. Played some shows there in France. So yeah, I mean, the name the name got out and about. And um, but as I say, we kind of did we did struggle to take things forward from that point. Then about that, you know, the beginning of the early seventies, early seventies. Yeah. The track I'd like to play from that is "Where Is My Answer." Yeah. We recorded up in Wembley in, in North London, the studio up there. And uh, and I recall we had a, a lovely friend who played Hammond Hammond organ, a guy called Ronnie Lee. He played the Stone the Crows and and, and various other bands actually. He played the Nazareth, in fact, not that long ago. So yeah, he came in and did some some lovely Hammond work on it, and and it's a really nice song. The guys and the guys and Sindors are quite keen actually to. Um, they keep coming. David, the keyboard player, keeps coming to say, "Hey, we need to do that. Where is my answer song from Tear So we. I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we could uh, go back and cover that again. It'd be quite nice. I can see that working. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of quite in, in keeping with what we're doing at the moment. It could probably work. Yeah.
the track after this is uh, Vambo Marbleye, uh, obviously by Saab, <laughs> which is, a, I mean, there's a few aspects to this. Um, you, you've talked briefly about the sort of meshing of Tegas and Alex, and you're looking for that front man who could really mm. bring the music alive. And, mm. you know, a track like Vambo is, is symptomatic like that. I mean, you know, in terms of the lyrics, and I imagine this all kind of bled into the, the, the stage acts, especially with tracks like Vambo. Yeah. I mean, Alex came along and we did get together. It was kind of a collaboration of managements that our manager and Alex's manager, I think, had a had a, a bit of a, a brainstorm and session and, and thought that perhaps the two things could work well together. And of course, you know, it did certainly work well. Uh, you know, we met Alex on the history of meeting them and going through rehearsals with them and getting getting things off the ground. It's um, it's quite well documented, but. Um, but yeah, Alex had this vision, you know, when I first saw him playing, he, uh, we'd supported him in the Marquee Club in, in London. He was playing with a band called Giant Moth, and just a three-piece band. And I could see they were trying to be progressive, but the band themselves weren't all that great. And, mm. But I could see in Alex, I could see this persona, there was something in him, this energy that he had of um, putting a song across. And I think he wanted to get hold of a band that could give him the right kind of backdrop for what he wanted to say through his songs. So, yeah, that, that that's how Sab really developed. It was really kicked off from that, just that meeting. And it was a very, it was very energetic. It was very exciting. Alex was really buzzing when we first had our first rehearsal. He knew right away, I think, that this was the band that could provide the backdrop for him. And um, so, yeah, as his ideas sort of came towards us, we just sort of soaked them up and just said, yeah, 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 we'll play that, we can do that, we can do that. And, you know, that's how South sort of developed. Am I right that it was your live shows that really started to build up that following for the group? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we just went out and played everywhere and anywhere to anyone. And it was a question of just getting in a van, like you did in those days, and just touring the country and just hit everybody with what we felt was something new, something fresh, mm. something a little a little bit controversial perhaps at times, a little bit, um, you know, Alex, we had an idea that we, we, should, we should get a reaction one way or another. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know, if people love you, then great. If they hate you, that's just as great. It was like, you know, he was, he was out to get a reaction. He was out to make an impact. Mm. And of course, that's kind of how the band really started to, uh, to go up and up and up, you know, because of, I think, that attitude more than anything, yeah.
mentioned kind of getting a reaction mm. on the uh, the next album there is the title track next <laughs> <laughs> and obviously that's that, that sort of famous old grey whistle test uh, episode with, a, with the string section yeah, with the violin players. people's jaws must have just been on the floor after seeing that well I mean no in hindsight yes of course I can understand and appreciate what people must have thought at the time we just felt that it was the most natural thing in the world for us to be doing because it seemed to just be what Saab were about, basically, you know, the the combination of a, of a, a powerful song lyrically with a powerful message, and a little bit of theatrics and a little bit of craziness thrown in. But again, it was a, it was it's odd when you when you say a song like next when you choose a song like that because having come from tear gas, having come from that sort of heavy metal sort of genre, it was. It was the oddest thing when Alex came along and says, right, we want to play a tango. We're going to play a tango. And we thought, sorry, a tango, you know. And it was like, yeah, okay. But Hugh and Ted being sort of, they're the most sort of musically minded, yeah. let's say. They thought, yeah, we can play a bit of that. We can do jazz. We can play tango. We can play swing. We can play everything and then so on. And then I thought, yeah, okay, let's just do it. So I think we just, we provided that backdrop for Alex to get that song. He was so desperate to get that lyric across, I think, to people who felt the song was so powerful. And of mm-hmm. course, it's a, it is a kind of an iconic sub track, yeah. N-E-X-T Sin, an army towel covering my belly. Some of us weep, some of us howl, knees turn to jelly. But next, next, I was just a child, a hundred like me. 
I followed a naked body, a naked body followed me. Next, next. I was just a child when my innocence was lost. In a mobile army hood house, a gift of the army free of cost. Maybe a smile, maybe some happiness, but next. Oh, it was not so tragic, and heaven did not fall. But how much at the time I hated being there at all. Next, next. I still recall the brothel trucks, the flying flags. The queer lieutenant slapped our asses, thinking we were fake. Next, next, next. I swear on the wet head of my first case of gonorrhea. It is his ugly voice that I forever fear. Next, next. A voice that stinks of whiskey, corpses and of mud. The voice of nations, the thick voice of blood in names. Next, since then each woman I have taken into bed, they seem to lie in my arms and they whisper in my head. And now we move forward a, a year or two as there's kind of the band built up and some of the singles were getting to, into the charts. Uh, it's a track from Tomorrow Belongs to Me. I think it's another one that you've you've co-written this time with, with Alex and that's Shark's Teeth. <laughs> that kind of seems to bring out some of the more... There's a, there's a sort of a little bit of theatrics from from Alex bringing that to life, but there's kind of that rock edge yeah. ready to it, which seems to be yeah. kind of symptomatic of the band's approach. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've chosen the songs that are slightly more obscure, perhaps, really than than the, the classic sad tracks, because simply because there's something, there's an element in these, these songs that um, that appeal to me in terms of the sort of the way the band was so diverse, and it was a kind of double-edged sword that thing of the band being um, a little bit too diverse, I think, at times. Shark's Teeth, yes, was our was our idea of um, playing a bit of jazz and a bit of fusion. 
know, we were all big fans of the fusion sort of scene of the bands like Mahavishnu Orchestra, John McLaughlin, you know, all that stuff, Jeff Beck, and when they were getting into the, um, the jazz fusion rock stuff. And we were big, big fans of the, all of that. So we thought, you know, you would play around and you would rehearse and you would try to kind of come up with stuff like in that sort of in that sort of genre. And um, and Sharp's Teeth kind of kicked off with that sort of riff, a kind of McLaughlin sort of guitar riff. But yeah, the songs, those songs, that song is slightly more obscure, I guess. And then the point you were making about, you know, the diver- or the point I was making sort of about the diversity of the band, I think it didn't, in the end, I've spoken to a few people about this over the years, and I think in the end it didn't really do us that many favours in terms of appealing to a very mainstream rock audience. I think the band became a little too off the wall, a little too indulgent perhaps even to gather the, the, the biggest rock audience we possibly could have done. And, uh, and it's a kind of regret. I think, I think we, we looking back at something, well, I don't know. It's not fair to say I regret it, but um, I, think, I think if we hadn't indulged ourselves in sort of some of the sort of crazier stuff, we might, have, we might have been able to sort of, you know, compete against the ACDCs and the Guns N' Roses and all that stuff. But I just, I don't know. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a personal opinion, basically. Yeah, I mean, kind of, especially in that sort of, that, that that middle period of Saab kind of it's really hard to pigeon all the band when when one minute mm. you're doing Shark's Teeth, the next minute you're doing Delilah, Vambo. Yeah. I mean, it is what made the group unique, I guess. It's yeah, kind of double edged, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I know, and I say that to people. You know, I say, yeah, it's, it's what people love about Saab. You know, and you have to accept that. And that's the way Saab were, and. Um, to me, they were more of a cult, more of a cult band than than, than, a, than a mainstream, you know, kind of mm. top-notch premiership sort of rock act. But uh, it was a big cult band, put it that way. And it was, um, mm. and, it, and the fans loved. It was diehard, you know. As I said earlier on, mm. you either loved Sab or you didn't really like them at all. And I think those people who do love Sab and understand Sab, I think, are absolute diehard, and they're still there today. They're coming down. They come out to see Sindogs, you know, as we speak. They're yeah. coming out, the band, people that saw the original band, and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm like amazed to meet these people every time I go out and do a gig uh, nowadays, you know. Just do it. 
the bay. Iona is diving for sponges. Unaware that the hammer-headed shark is coming up fast. <laughs> he biting me. We move on to Saab stories and uh, a, a track that you've chosen, $25 for a massage. And you, you mentioned <laughs> something about that songwriting process, and I think that was more of a group effort. Again, was that a, did that kind of evolve from a jam? It kind of cut, yeah. We used to rehearse and write and do all our work, and Chris, the bass player, Chris Glenn, he had a garage that <laughs> a garage up in his back garden, so we stripped this garage out. And him and I went in with a load of... Um, Acoustic tiles and a big, big pot of glue, and we started nailing, started sort of sticking all these, all these tiles to the wall to try and make it a bit more soundproof. You know, and we'd been inhaling this glue for about a fortnight, so it was like. Uh, anyway, we got to the point where we started to re- rehearse seriously in there, and one day Chris and I were just in ourselves, and I was playing the drums, and Chris was playing the bass, and um, he started playing the little bass line from. Well, what is now? Yeah, uh, $25. I was up being the, playing this little sort of silly drum beat, and the two of us went, hey, that sounds all right. We'll stick that down. Because the guys came in later on and went, yeah, what's all that about? So suddenly, and Alex went, yeah, 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 just keep playing it, and I'll get some lyrics for it. And suddenly, there it is. And it's such a cute little song. There's something about it that just appeals to me. I don't know what it is. It's something. It's got almost like a uh, like kind of talking heads, something, you know, it's got yeah. some kind of... Some, some kind of groove about it that I really, really like. Almost a reportage type lyrics, kind of n- nothing, nothing kind of just stream of consciousness. Yeah. What, what's on the top yeah, of Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like taking you somewhere. It's like one of these Midwest kind of road 
sort of movies, mm. you know, something going on, you're not quite sure what's happening. <laughs> but yeah, I love it, I absolutely love it, yeah. move on to some tracks from an underappreciated album really uh, Rock Drill in, in Saab's history and we have the title track there kind of getting a, a harder sound mm-hmm. in, in parts there but still re- retaining that sort of adventurous element Yeah I mean obviously Hugh had left the band because of his illness at that, uh, just before that album was recorded he'd started working on one or two of the tracks Hugh before he fell ill uh, actually the track yeah. called Dolphins in fact was the track that he wrote Yeah, and um we brought in Tommy Ayer, who's a wonderful, wonderful, God bless him, no, no longer with us, but Tommy Ayer, the most wonderful musician, keyboard player. Uh, he'd worked with Joe Cocker and, you know, Matty from Sheffield. He was just a sort of wonderful man, wonderful musician. And he, 
he influenced us almost immediately, Tommy, when he came into the band, with his whole knowledge of classical music and jazz music. And the thing about Rock Girl was it, was it felt like we were struggling to keep everything together. Uh, as at, the, at, at the same time, we were desperate to kind of keep something, you know, keep providing or coming up with ideas, you know, because it had been a real struggle over the years, particularly for Alex. Mm. Um, we were on a really, really busy schedule from day one, you know, like it was like a treadmill, you know, working, recording, touring, rehearsing, recording, touring, rehearsing. It was just like nonstop, putting out two albums a year, basically. So when we got to that stage, I could see that Alex was, he wasn't in the best of health himself. And um, so we went out to the country to start recording. Um, I don't know, somewhere in the country to study. And, um, and yeah, the ideas that came along, a lot of them were Tony's ideas, some what Hugh had come up with and a few ideas that everybody else chipped in with. And the, and the, the album has uh, an intensity that I love, but it also has a kind of an unfinished quality. It's, it's something that's underproduced in a, in a way. I think if we'd had the time and, had the tw- and spent the time and everybody had been in the frame of mind to to really focus on it. It could have been a bit of a masterpiece, I think, Rock Drill. Um, but as good as it is, it's still, as I, as I say about all, almost all sub albums, it just falls slightly short of being the complete finished article, if you know what I mean. One of the, the aspects of the band that you, you never you never quite kind of managed to get, a, say, a, a pair pair of albums in, in a row where you were completely happy with the, the, the albums. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because we always struggled for a producer, mm. and I think that was that was that was in hindsight. I think that's exactly where the problem the problem lay was in finding the exactly well. How are you going to get a producer who can deal with all of that mm. in one session? You know, and say, right, I know what to do with next. I know what to do with Faith Healer. I know what to do with you know Chef. I know what to do, and so on and so on. So you're looking at somebody who's got the. Um, you were looking for some kind of genius, you know, like Frank Zappa or somebody would have been mm. a great producer, I think. If they could hold it in, that would have been, you know, we maybe have had everything turn out fine, but um, it was, it was a bit of a paradox, to be honest, yeah.
on Rock Drill, you know, you, again, you mentioned this earlier, you, you were still able to turn out tracks like The Dolphins, mm-hmm. which is, is certainly in that top, top level of, of, you know, great, great soundtracks. Oh, it's, a, it's an absolute, it's my favourite soundtrack of all. All the, you know, Faith Healer's great, Chef's great, and a few other beauties that are, that are wonderful songs. Uh, but, but yeah, Dolphin is always a song that I kind of, people say, what's your favourite soundtrack? I say, well, Dolphin, yeah, it's, um, it has the beginnings of something and it has the ending of something for me. You know, it sums up where Sab had got to. It took, you know, we were, it, as musicians, we were at a stage where we were playing in a certain way. And it also had a kind of finality about it of like, well, here's, here's what you've missed out on, folks, you know, because the band ain't going to be around for much longer. And it had that sort of, sort of comic tragedy ending, I suppose, in a way. was a Greek 
And our last track off uh, Rock Drill is uh, Water Beastie. Again, you know, a track actually certainly with, with fans that is um, very well regarded. What is it about that track that means that that's, uh, you know, a, a highlight for you? Well, I mean, I've you know, been Scottish, you know, and, and you know, <laughs> haven't been to Loch Ness and haven't, you know, mm. searched for the monster as everybody does. You know, it's a real folklore thing in Scotland. So the Water Beastie is, is just part of our, our whole folklore in Scotland and it's a and you know nobody would say that it doesn't exist and so we were all very attached to the to the idea of the song a very sentimental approach we took to it and um and it has again it has a kind of an anthemic anthemic feel to it you know a bit like anthem the song anthem was a similar thing it has a it has a kind of a traditional something traditional and folky about it which is um, quite unique when Sab got involved in songs like that, they always managed to come out with something. Hugh in particular, what well, was Hugh's song, obviously, 
And uh, we'd recorded, funnily enough, the little section that blends into it. We'd recorded, I was mentioning earlier, but working in Chris's garage where we record. Yeah. We actually recorded the reggae section on a cassette player. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just playing in, in the garage with Ted on a little tiny drum kit. Hugh on piano. I was playing a little, to a little friend of Champ Amp and Chris Brown bass. And we just recorded the, the reggae section and took it to the studio on a cassette and asked the engineers to blend it into the other part of the song. So it was... Um, it was quite a bit of a it was a bit of a job to get it done, but it's it's for me it just has a it has it has a real combination of everything that we uh, that we were about at that time. When I was nothing but a baby sitting on my Look at the mountain. 
After the recording of Rock Drill and you're kind of looking towards that that next tour, mm. the the cracks and I'm assuming that the sort of toll on Alex kind of just became too yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, you could see it. You, you could see it coming, I guess. Uh, you know, we'd we'd had hints of it when uh, gigs, certain places, certain tours that we'd done over in Scandinavia, when you could see that Alex was struggling. Uh, struggling with the booze, struggling with everything, you know, like with his marriage, was he struggling with his marriage? Uh, you know, the whole thing was just kind of, was getting on top of him. And um, when we were, we'd gone down to Shepparton, the big, big film studios actually set up to, you know, to do a, pre, a pre-production sort of rehearsals for things down there. And you have your whole stage set put up. And we were rehearsing to go and do a tour of Europe at that particular point. It, it just, we were ready to go out to, to Europe and really perhaps, consolidate the band's position mm. uh, on a more international sort of level and because um, I mean we've been obviously been to Europe before but I think this was a this was us going out to headline effectively our own European tour and we got through a few days of rehearsal and then it was just Alec came in and just said I can't do this I can't do this anymore he was just he just didn't seem to have anything in him you know and he just phoned for a taxi cab and and took himself home and we just sat there and went right okay guys what do we do now, you know? And that was that was basically how it ended. I mean, I've re- recently done um, some podcasts with Jim Lee of Slade, and they they had like a, a second wave of success, including the States, kind of in, in, in the 1980s, especially around kind of, yeah. uh, you know, where the, the pop videos started coming in and, and that visual element mm-hmm. which played to the band. But it seems to me that Saab in particular could have, you know, in a, in a different mm-hmm. uh, parallel mm-hmm. universe kind of had that, yeah. Success in the eighties. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. Ted and I spoke about this just the other day. The, the, the MTV generation is what sad. Sad would have been absolutely purpose built for all of that, you know. And I think there is footage, obviously, of the band from here and there. But um, that, yeah, I think I think that would have been our, our next move. Would have been to take Alex to that sort of level and, and, and make use of the video side of things. And, so we just kind of missed out. We just missed the boat, really, and that's in that respect. Yeah, yeah. But after Saab, you you enjoyed success with Nazareth, and um, oh, we, were already, we were already successful when I signed them. So, yeah. You did. You enjoyed success. But, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, certainly as a as a writer, looking at the the Malice in Wonderland album, which I think was the second album you you did with Nazareth, your songwriting is all over that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I first got together. with Guys, I mean, we knew that. Obviously, we knew the boys. We all had three management companies, you know, down in London, and 
and we knew each other well, you know, we'd pass across and we'd worked a lot. We'd worked on Dan McCafferty's solo album. It was all sad, all sad musicians playing on that. So we knew the guys really, really well and I knew Manny well and, and I got a phone call from him to say, what are you up to? And at that time, I was driving a minicab around London just to sort of make ends meet, make a living. And he says, well, why don't you leave without recording the, the No Moon City album? They were out with a mobile studio in the Isle of Man. And he says, come over. He says, come over and see what we're doing. And I thought, okay, I'll pop over and see what you're up to. And I think at that time, they were more interested in, in getting some input for ideas, song ideas. I think they were hmm. maybe just struggling a little bit for, for songs and, and looking to, to get some fresh impetus, uh, some fresh, fresh uh, input. So, yeah, it kind of kicked off from there. I went over and played a little bit of guitar on the No Mean City album. I had a couple of songs, I think, that we, we, we sort of put together for that. And then they were off in America and he says, come out, come out and see what we're doing in the States. And I went, okay, I'll come over and see what And I, because I was quite mm. pleasantly surprised to see just how big they actually were in America and Canada. Um, we were doing big, big, big proper stadium gigs. And I thought, wow, yeah, this is, this is okay. So yeah, I kind of, I kind of fell into it in that sense and just uh, stayed with them for a couple of years. And, and as you said, the, the Malice in Wonderland album was uh, more Manny and I just sitting writing and writing and writing until we got the album together. And, uh, and it was great, you know, it was good. And it's nice to play all that stuff. And it was nice to get involved with guys who are such, such really, you know, good players. Dan's such a great singer. And, but funny, it's funny because it's kind of, again, I got to the stage when Nazareth I was wanting to move on and, mm. and do stuff that was a little more progressive again. And uh, that bug got to me, I think, same as, as I had, as it did, with Findos, I wanted to move on. As I said before, with Sad, with a bit of Sad, and so I ended up saying cheerio to the guys in, in Nazareth, and, and and I got I got to, together with Barry Barlow from Jeffrey Tull, the drummer, and we put a little project together that we wanted to try and work on, mm. which never effectively got off the ground, to be honest. But it was it was just musically, it was where I wanted to be at that particular time. Tanduri Cassette, that was a band called Tanduri Cassette, very obscure, very. Very interesting. Well, let's uh, let's play "Hearts Grown Cold" from, from Nazareth from that that mm. Malice in Wonderland album. Nice yeah, is it, I mean it, yeah. it does show that other side to you Sweet in song. terms of that more conventional, if you want to use that term. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, when I pick up a guitar, I just sometimes I just you know I just feel like a country song seems to just come out of you just like that. It's like to me, it's like a country yeah. song effectively. Uh, and you just think, well, yeah, okay, you can write songs like that, why not? You know, just do them, let people hear them. You're the one that's faking it. You're the one that's faking it. 
later on you were kind of doing some session uh-huh. you were kind of doing some session work touring yeah I did session work with um, with Elkie Brooks and Bonnie Tyler and then did a sort of world tour with Midge with Midge U and he had the gift album he just recorded the gift album and um, we had at that time had asked Mick Ronson to come and play the tour with him and I think Mick didn't work out too well or he wasn't in good shape I don't know what happened but I got a phone call hmm. from uh, the bass player who was Elkie's bass player at the time who was working with Midge and said can you come down and do this gig? We only got two weeks before we go on the road. And I thought, okay, I'll come down, and, uh, and that's how that happened. So yeah, yeah, and spent a few years with Elke, and her, which was a kind of a learning process for me. You know, it was like a completely different style of music, and having to a different discipline altogether for me to, mm. to to play different kinds of music. And it was it was fun. It was always fun. Yeah, yeah. Certainly by the nineties and onwards, the you know the fact the clamour for sort of Saab reunions kind of entered entered the fray. Yeah, the, re- the reincarnations of Saab, the various reincarnations. Yeah, we, as I said earlier, we were trying to find the right singer. And we had Stevie Doherty, who's got the most fantastic rock voice. You know, he was a phenomenal singer. You know, he's up there with the best of them, to be honest, all the guys. You know, that, that mainstream Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, you know, John May Foreigner, all that and stuff. Mm. He, was, he was fabulous as a, as a singer. But again, it lacked the kind of theatrical presentation. It lacked the kind of the intimacy and the kind of, mm. yeah, I just liked what Saab really needed, I guess, overall. Until we, until Max, as I said, until Max came along, and he was a kind of a, he was a kind of a spark for me to get involved in Saab again, to get the, well, to get the makeup on and do the whole sort of show, you know. It was him that really sparked that off. To close, obviously, we're um, playing uh, the Sin Dogs again, and. Um... Mm. I'd like to play Magic Love. What what's uh, the, yeah. what was the uh, genesis around that song? Yeah, Magic Love was another one of the songs that I wrote in Cyprus when I was there. And again, it was another early early song that came together on just on acoustic guitar. I was working with sort of different tunings, you know, detuning the guitar. Like you talked earlier, you mentioned earlier about sort of the, the album sounding quite contemporary in terms of its rock feel and sound. And most of that, mm. well, not most of it, but a part of the reason for that is that everything's kind of detuned and drop tuned. Um, which you hear a lot of, you know, with the bands that you that that, that you could, you could sort of link yourself to today. So yeah, so it was a, it, there was a style of of, of a sound of, of the guitar that I, I really liked about that detuning, and and and, and that's how uh, that's how the riff came about in uh, uh, Magic Love. It started with that kind of Zeppelin kind of thing, you know, that sort of feel of a kind of Zeppelin type sort of time signature and stuff, a bit kind of a bit kind of Eastern. But it's such a it's, it's, it's one of my favourite songs to be perfectly honest of, of all the Sing Dogs track that's great mm. you've got a, a website singdogsofficial.com and you're on your Facebook etc yeah we're everywhere we're everywhere we can be <laughs> before we close uh, can you just tell me about the, the band and, and the musicians that you're working with on Sing Dogs yeah absolutely yeah as I said David Cowan is a keyboard player I'd done for a while before he was the man that I contacted to mm. to put Sin Dogs together, and he's the one who works. He's the sort of music. He's a musician in the band. Let's put it that way. That's what chords you're playing. So David is, is is wonderful. He's he's so enthusiastic, and he wants to. He really wants to be a rock star. So he's he's he's, he's very keen. And Scott and and then we had a, a bass player, Nelson McFarlane, who's a very schooled five string bass player. Plays every sort of style that you want. So he he was ideal. Well, the guys actually play in a band. I don't know if you know the. the the musicians that I, that I got together with play in a Saab tribute band. That's how we actually got together. Oh, right. They play in a band called wow. the Sensational Alex Harry Band Experience. So they've been doing gigs all over Scotland, dressing up as Saab yeah. and doing the whole Saab thing. 
And I knew of this, and I'd seen them once or twice, and I thought, wow, these guys can play, you know, they could really play. They were top-notch musicians, I thought. Yeah. And I never really thought about they were going to be Sin Dogs, but it just kind of fell into place when I was when I was looking to put the bands, and it got to that stage where we needed to put a band together. Davey says, well, why don't we just get all the rest of the guys in and see where it goes from there? So Nelson McFarlane on bass. We've got Willie McGonagall on guitar, who's the most wonderful guitar player. Plays guitar very much like myself. Mm. Uh, a lot of empathy with, with Willie in terms of his musicianship. And then the original drummer was Scott Curry, who came in, who was a student of Ted's, Ted McKenna, who's taught him how to play drums. Oh, yeah. And Scott Scott came in, but he, his commitments his commitments are at a college, he teaches at college, yeah. and there's a whole music business course at one of the colleges. So he's just recently had to pull out, and we've got a brand new drummer we've been rehearsing with just last week. A guy called uh, Louis Malvesi, who's a Brazilian uh, drummer, lives up, lives up in Scotland. So we've just started uh, rehearsals with him to get him up to speed before we do our next show, which is uh, in New York, I think, towards the end of next month. So that's pretty much the lineup. Brilliant. Well, um, all the all the best uh, with uh, continued success on your your uh, new album, Volume One, and uh, the shows, Cheers. and also supporting uh, Snake Charmer in October. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Snake Charmer gigs. I think that'll be a good audience for us. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Thanks, thanks for your uh, thanks for your kind words, and uh, I hope to see you sometime when we get out and about. So, yeah, that'd be look. That'd be absolutely be a you know a real pleasure. So okay. hopefully, okay, Jason, mate. All the best. Pleasure. All right, cheers see you again. Bye bye. Bye.
thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to unedited interviews as they're done, news, plus even access to my exclusive interview archive. All your support goes into keeping the show running and moving forward and getting amazing guests. To support me, just go to patreon.com forward slash strangebrewpod or go to thestrangebrew.co.uk forward slash about. Thanks very much and any reviews on your podcasting services are greatly appreciated. Thank you.